Our scripture reading this evening is from the Gospel of John, chapter 6, verses 47 through 58. 47 through 58. Hear the Word of God. Verily, verily, I say unto you, he that believeth on me hath everlasting life. I am that bread of life. Your fathers did eat manna in the wilderness and are dead. This is the bread which cometh down from heaven that a man may eat thereof and not die. I am the living bread which came down from heaven. If any man eat of this bread, he shall live forever. And the bread that I will give is my flesh, which I will give for the life of the world. The Jews, therefore, strove among themselves, saying, How can this man give us his flesh to eat? Then Jesus said unto them, Verily, verily, I say unto you, Except ye eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, ye have no life in you. Whoso eateth my flesh and drinketh my blood hath eternal life, and I will raise him up at the last day. For my flesh is meat indeed, and my blood is drink indeed. He that eateth my flesh and drinketh my blood dwelleth in me and I in him. As the living Father has sent me, and I live by the Father, so he that eateth me, even he shall live by me. This is that bread which came down from heaven, not as your fathers did eat manna and are dead. He that eateth of this bread shall live forever. Thus far, the reading of God's blessed word. Dear church family, we're all familiar with, in everyday life, road signs that guide us, whether driving to church or anywhere. Boys and girls, you see stop signs, you see railroad crossing signs, speed limit signs, and all kinds of signs. And as your dad or your mom are driving, you realize that these signs are important. If you didn't have signs, or if you didn't obey signs, life would become very dangerous. Maybe, maybe you've been to a foreign country where people didn't pay attention to signs, like, like I've been, where people are just driving all over the place, and sometimes in wrong directions, and it's just so dangerous. You're sitting on the edge of your seat because there's no direction. There's no application. Signs are important. Clear signs that convey meaning and direction. But what can be worse than signs is when signs are twisted. Have you ever seen a street corner where Someone has come along and twisted the sign, and now the road 
that's going this way and the road that's going that way, the sign has been twisted. So they're both named wrong and you tend to go in the wrong direction. Can you imagine how confusing the whole city of Grand Rapids would be if you were a visitor here and all the signs in this city, all the road signs, were twisted? But what if in driver's education, for example, one classroom was taught that a stop sign means stop. Another group was taught that a stop sign means go. Can you imagine what would happen if they got on the road together? Well, Satan. Satan has done this. He's twisted the signs of the sacraments of the church. God has given us clear, simple, beautiful signs in baptism and the Lord's Supper. Water, bread, and wine. But Satan has twisted them. He's turned them around so that people are confused, even deceived, rather than helped many times by these signs. And it's the goal of Lord's Day 29 in our catechism to take away that confusion, particularly that has surrounded the Lord's Supper. When people ask the question and come up with so many different answers, what does the sign, the signs, the bread, the wine, really mean? And I want to show you tonight that the answers are actually simple, beautiful, powerful, and experiential. And we'll look at that from John 6, verses 54 through 56, and Lord's Day 29. Let's read those verses, John 6, 54 to 56. Whoso eateth my flesh and drinketh my blood hath eternal life, and I will raise him up at the last day. For my flesh is meat indeed, and my blood is drink indeed. He that eateth my flesh and drinketh my blood dwelleth in me, and I in him. And then question 78 and 79 of the Catechism. Do then the bread and wine become the very body and blood of Christ? Not at all. But as the water in baptism is not changed into the blood of Christ, neither is the washing away of sin itself, being only the sign and confirmation thereof appointed of God. So the bread in the Lord's Supper is not changed into the very body of Christ, though agreeably to the nature and properties of sacraments, it is called the body of Christ Jesus. Why then doth God call the bread his body and the cup his blood, or the new covenant in his blood, and Paul the communion of the body and blood of Christ? Christ speaks thus not without great reason, namely, not only thereby to teach us that as bread and wine support this temporal life, so his crucified body and shed blood are the true meat and drink, whereby our souls are fed to eternal life. But more especially, by these visible signs and pledges, to assure us that we are as really partakers of his true body and blood by the operation of the Holy Ghost as we receive by the mouths of our bodies these holy signs in remembrance of him, that is, Christ. 
and that all his sufferings in obedience are as certainly ours as if we had in our own persons suffered and made satisfaction for our sins to God. Well, our theme to end tonight with God's help is feasting on Christ. Feasting on Christ in communion. And first we'll look at what bread and wine are. Second, what bread and wine mean. And third, what bread and wine do. Feasting on Christ. What bread and wine are, what they mean, and what they do. So the question of the bread and wine in the Lord's Supper has, as I implied in my introduction, caused a lot of division, a lot of struggle, a lot of heated arguments, fiery words, even great divisions in the church of Jesus Christ. It not only separated Roman Catholics from Protestants, but also divided Protestants into three different groups. The Lutherans, the Reformed, and the, or the Calvinists, and the Zwinglians. So, this of course was a heated question in the 16th century, and our instructors in Lord's Day 29 are taking a classic Calvinistic view of the signs and seals in the Lord's Supper. But why is that important today? Some people like to look at the catechism on Lord's Days like this. There's not very many of them, but Lord's Days like this, and say, well, is that, is that relevant today? Well, yes, it is. Very relevant, actually. Maybe it's not so heated today, but it's still relevant. Relevant for three reasons, a practical reason, because we need to be able to defend ourselves against these views, these false views, still today. Still today, Roman Catholics believe that when you partake of their Mass, that you're actually eating the physical body and blood of Jesus, which is sacrificed afresh by the priest. And we need to know why that's wrong. Secondly, it's important for a theological reason. You see, what we think of the Lord's table and of the signs and the seals that are there, these are not small doctrines. These reflect what we think of Jesus and how we commune with him theologically, in the depths of our soul. And thirdly, it's important for experiential reasons. Experiential reasons. If we don't understand what the bread and wine really are, the table will not benefit us experientially. It's only as we understand experientially how we commune with Jesus at the Lord's Supper that we will benefit from the Lord's Supper. So what what are these different views? Just very briefly. Well, first of all, there's the wrong view of Roman Catholicism. Teaching transubstantiation. Coming from two words, trans, which means to cross over, and substance. Transubstantiation means the substance of the bread and the wine 
transfer over and now become the very blood, the very body of the Lord Jesus. So they're no more bread and wine. They just look like bread and wine. They smell like bread and wine, but they're not bread and wine. They are the real body and blood of Jesus. That's why I don't think the priests do that anymore, but that's why in medieval age, they would often have a little, kind of a a very thin piece of cloth beneath where the priest would, would drink it, drink the wine for you. You couldn't have it yourself because you might spill a drop, and that would be terrible if you spilled a drop because this is the real blood of Jesus. And so they'd have a little piece of cloth, a very thin cloth beneath the cup. And if they took a drink for the people and they spilled a drop, they'd actually take a scissors and cut out that little piece of cloth and eat it, cloth and all, because you can't, you can't risk one drop of wine not being drunk since this is the very blood of Jesus. Now to us, this seems absurd. Seems extreme. But you see, to the Roman Catholic, this is my body, Jesus said. And so, when they read texts like our text this evening, whoso eateth my flesh and drinketh my blood hath eternal life, they read that in a very literal way. A very literal way. This is my body means this becomes my body in Roman Catholic thinking. Because of that, Rome has exalted the sacraments above preaching. That's why usually the altar where the Mass is celebrated is the center of their church and the pulpit's off to one side. And there is something automatic about the grace you receive if you receive the sacrament. If you see the wafer exalted and turn, so-called turned into the body of Christ and the wine turned into the blood of Christ, then that grace is communicated to you. In fact, if now in the present day you actually eat that bread, Rome used to say that you can grind the body of Christ with your teeth. And that if you don't believe this doctrine, that you're actually eating the real Christ. You are, the Council of Trent says, which is still in force today, you are accursed of God. You are accursed of God. So in the Roman Catholic mind, our view of the sacrament seems to be very much downplayed. The Mass is, in their view, the high point of church life. Because they're actually eating and drinking the very body and blood of Christ. And they call that sacramental grace. You automatically get grace when you partake of this body and blood. Now, John Calvin, of course, raised sharp objections, as did all the Reformers and Puritans, in condemning the papal mass. In fact, the first question of the next Lord's Day, Lord's Day 30, is the Request of Calvin, this question was added because he said, you can't, you can't have, Calvin solved the catechism, by the way, the year before he died. It was 
Catechism is 1563, died in 1564. He approved of every word of it, he said. But you've got to add one question. You've got to add a question that calls the mass an accursed idolatry of the church. Because Christ has shed his blood once and for all. And the book of Hebrews has made it very plain. There's no more blood to be shed. And when you sacrifice Christ afresh, and you eat him physically, you're constantly sacrificing Christ. You're denying that the gospel is fully accomplished, Calvin said. He also said the mass suppresses and conceals the cross by erecting an altar beside it, teaching that Christ has to be sacrificed every day for us. And by exalting the sacrament, Calvin also said, what you're doing is you're drawing away attention from Christ himself and his saving power to the church who has the power to sacrifice Christ every day. And the church becomes the be-all and the end-all. Well, the second unbiblical answer was given by Martin Luther. Now, Luther had this attitude to the church that you only change what absolutely needs to be changed. If the Bible is silent about something, you don't change it. Or if it's not clear, you don't change it. And so Luther tried to keep some of the Roman Catholic traditions that are not grounded in the Word. So he was very influenced by the Catholic idea, this is my body. And thus Luther said, well, obviously, it's still bread, and it's still wine, and we cannot sacrifice Christ afresh. Obviously, that's wrong. It's right against the book of Hebrews. And so Luther said, but Christ's body is also omnipresent everywhere, not just his deity, but his body. And therefore, his body is in and with and under the bread and wine, which still stays as bread and wine. In, with, and under. Those were his three big words. And so what Luther is saying is that the bread remains bread, the wine remains wine, but when you eat the bread and you drink the wine, you're actually eating Christ and drinking him, but not sacrificed afresh but you're eating and drinking by faith. But it's the real body of Christ because his body's everywhere. So that view is called consubstantiation. Co meaning together with. Not trans, where it transfers over, but together with it. Together with it. So it's both spiritual eating and physical eating of the, of the real body, but it's not a physical body, strictly speaking. So Luther explained it this way. He said, if you take a plain iron bar and you heat it in the fires of a forge, it gets hot. The bar does not change. The bar is still a bar. But there's also heat with it now. So you have the bar and you have heat. And they're inseparable. You can't grab the bar without feeling the heat. And Luther said, it's like that with the bread and wine. When you eat them, you physically Eat grace because you eat the body of the Lord as it comes along with the bread. And so Lutherans 
look at the Roman Catholics and say, this is a sham bread because it doesn't, the body, this, it, it doesn't change for, to be not bread. But they looked at the Reformed, at us, and said, this is a sham body because the Reformed say the physical presence of Christ is not in the bread and in the wine. And so Luther grouped Calvin and Zwingli together and said, you guys are just spiritualists and you're minimizing the physical element. Jesus said, this is my body and it remains, it remains, this is my body. Now Zwingli, the first reformer, he overreacted to Luther and said, the Lord's Supper is nothing but a memorial. That's all it is. It's just, it's just like a road sign. The bread, the wine, they're just symbols. That's all, no more. And they just help us to think about Jesus' body and Jesus' blood. So we have here just a memorial of what Jesus has done. Now, Calvin situated himself between Zwingli and Luther. And why did he do that? Well, he said, the Lord's Supper is clearly more than a memorial because there's a sense in which we really are eating Christ and drinking Christ. You can't deny that from John six fifty four through 56. Whoso eateth my flesh and drinketh my blood hath eternal life, and I will raise him up at the last day. For my flesh is meat indeed, my blood is drink indeed. He that eateth my flesh, drinketh my blood, dwelleth in me, and I in him. And you see that reflected also in question 78. Do then the bread and wine become the very body and blood of Christ? Not at all. But as the water in baptism is not changed into the blood of Christ, neither is washing away of sin itself, being only the sign and confirmation thereof appointed of God, so the bread in the Lord's Supper is not changed into the very body of Christ, though, and here comes the Calvinistic element, agreeably to the nature and properties of sacraments, it is called the body of Christ. So what does that mean? What does the catechism mean here? Well, it means two things. It does mean, first of all, that the bread and wine of the Lord's table are symbolic. They're not literal, physical body and blood. But they represent them. So, in that sense, Zwingli is right. They are memorials. They are representations. When the Lord Jesus instituted the Lord's Supper, he had not yet been crucified. He took bread and break it and said, this is my body. 1 Corinthians 10, verse 16, teaches us the same thing. The bread which we break is not the communion, is it not the communion of the body of Christ? It is still bread when it is broken, of course, and when it is distributed. So this means that you do not eat the body of Christ physically with your mouth. And you see, the Bible uses this symbolism regularly. The Reformers pointed this out again and again. Jesus said, I am the door. It doesn't mean he's physically a door. But a door talks about who Jesus is. Isn't that correct? A door opens and a door shuts. Through Jesus, the door is open to salvation and the door is shut. 
So when Christ appoints a sacrament, what he's doing is he's using pictures or signs by the same name that it represents to show us the close connection. And then secondly, the bread and wine at the table, and this is what Zwingli wouldn't say, but Calvin will say, the bread and wine at the table are means of grace. Means of grace. Through the celebration of the supper, as a child of God, by faith, spiritually, not physically, eats, as you physically eat and drink, but you take it in spiritually, and it's spiritually applied to you, the Lord gives you grace and strength. Not automatically, but as you receive the bread and the wine by faith through the work of the Holy Spirit. And you see, that's confirmed by 1 Corinthians 11.26. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you do show, in the Greek the word is proclaim, you do proclaim the Lord's death till he come. And as you focus on Jesus, then you commune with him because as surely as you eat that bread and drink that cup by faith, so surely your sins shall be washed away by the broken body and the shed blood of Christ, which has already happened and is not to happen again. It's all done already. And you see, for Calvin then, the Lord's Supper is a special sacrament in which you commune spiritually with Jesus through the signs and seals. You're looking at what the signs and seals represent, and you're believing and appropriating what they represent to your own soul. As surely as I drink, as surely as I eat, you see, Christ spiritually, spiritually, so surely I may be assured that my sins are washed away through his broken body and his shed blood. So that's a historical setting. Now, what, what, this is my second thought. What, what do the bread and wine then actually mean? That's question 79. Why then does Christ call the bread his body and call the wine his blood or the new covenant in his blood? And Paul, why does he call it the communion of the body and blood of Christ? And the answer begins with, Christ speaks thus not without great reason. So what is the great reason why there's such a close tie in this language? Well, in his compassion for the weakness and the dullness of his people, the Lord Jesus appoints this simple may I call it a meal or supper, in his church. And this meal of bread and wine is an example of the way in which the grace of Jesus, merited on the cross, feeds his people to everlasting life. So Calvin put it this way. God's people are full of weaknesses. And so often, even under the preached word, we don't seem to be able, as we should, to appropriate that to ourselves by faith. And so in the sacrament he come, of the Lord's Supper, he comes particularly low, Calvin put it, and it involves all five of our senses. 
So we touch the bread and wine. We smell it. We taste it. We see it. And we hear the minister as he speaks to us at the table. And through those five senses, you see, we are hearing and seeing in this sign and seal that is surely as we partake of these things, by faith, if you don't have faith, you get nothing. But by faith, believingly, trusting in Christ alone for salvation, in the very act of eating, the very act of drinking, the Holy Spirit applies to that those five senses, as surely as I partake of this by faith, so surely all my sins are washed away. And you commune with Jesus, and you remember Jesus. And that's why when you come to the Lord's Supper, and you just focus on how sinful you've been, which is is good preparation because you realize how unworthy you are, but you don't focus on Jesus, you go away empty. But when you come unworthy in yourself and you find your worthiness only in Christ and you focus on Him and what He's done and the sufferings He endured to save you, when that's what you dwell on, you see, then the Holy Spirit gives you through your senses, your physical senses, the spiritual faith you need to embrace This glorious truth that as certainly as I eat and drink, so surely Christ has washed me from all my sins through his own blood, his own broken body. And you see, when that happens, there are moments of sweet communion at the table and in reflection later after you commemorate. Moments of sweet communion with Christ. He's done all this for me. I drink it in. I eat it by faith. See, that's what it means. He who eats of my body and drinks of my flesh, he it is, he it is, who dwells in me and I in him. This is a spiritual uh, application. It's not a physical one, though it uses physical elements to apply and make clear in a simple way the spiritual substance. Now, in a way, a good teacher does this all the time. Isn't that true? Um, let's say you, you want to teach a little child something. Well, let's just say that the earth goes around the sun and not the other way around. Well, maybe you'll walk into the kitchen and you take an apple and you'll set it down. You say, see my son or my daughter? See this apple? Pretend it's the sun. And now we're going to take a little raspberry, much smaller, like the earth is much smaller than the sun, and this raspberry is going around the apple, slowly around the apple. So the earth goes slowly around the sun. And and we realize that the apple's not not the sun, and and the raspberry's not the earth, Right? But you get the picture. And it's simple. Well, that's what, in a way what God is doing in the Lord's Supper. It's not a one-to-one comparison. It's not the best example. But God's doing something similar, you see. So that as you gaze at the wine, as you drink the wine, as you, as you hold the bread in your hand and you eat the bread, you're reflecting 
on what Jesus has done for you. And as you reflect on that, by faith, you commune with him and you're humbled. You're humbled by what he has done for you. So Christ speaks thus not without great reason, namely, thereby to teach us that as bread and wine support our temporal life, can't live long without food and drink, so his crucified body and shed blood are the true meat and the true drink, whereby our souls, spiritual you see, are fed to eternal life. So just as you need physical food for your body, you need spiritual food through Christ for your never-dying soul. That's why we say every day, too, we say this, don't we? You have your physical meals with your family, and therefore you need to also have spiritual food every day, because that's just as important, more important. And so you have to have family worship, right? You can't just keep eating meals if you're a Christian and go without spiritual food. So every day you give your family physical food and you give your family spiritual food. Well, both of those are pictured for us beautifully in the Lord's Supper. So in the Calvinist approach, which is the biblical one, I maintain, there is a tension between Christ's real special presence in the Lord's Supper, which Zwingli didn't teach, And the necessity that that special presence where Christ comes near to his people in the supper be experienced spiritually by faith as we partake of the body and blood of Christ with our mouth. And so that's what it means when Jesus says, He that eateth my flesh and drinketh my blood dwelleth in me and I in him. Now, the Belgic Confession of Faith, which we also adhere to, of course, says it this way, maintaining the same tension. In the meantime, we do not err, we do not make a mistake when we say that what is eaten and drunk by us in the proper and natu- is a proper and natural body and the proper blood of Christ. And then you say, wait a minute, I thought you just said it wasn't. Well, there's a tension there, you see. We're, we're reflecting on the physical. But it then goes on to say, but the manner of our partaking of the same is not by the mouth, but by the Holy Spirit through faith. You see, so there's a picture, a physical picture that you take in as you drink and you eat, but the real essence of it is not the physical, it's the spiritual, the spiritual communion with Christ. So in the sacrament, Through the signs of bread and wine, we enter into communion, into fellowship with God, and by extension, to some degree, also with His people. With His people, we commune with one another. And that application to the soul binds us to God. So we leave the supper, and we want to covenant our entire lives back to God, who feeds us with spiritual food in Christ, but it also binds us to one another as Christians as we apprehend a crucified Christ, afresh in our soul, commune with Him, feast upon Him and His benefits, we also want to commune with one another and feast together 
on the spiritual fellowship we have in the Lord Jesus Christ. So, what is it? What is it then about the cross of Christ that is so much food, such good food for our soul? Well, it's this, that as we sit at communion, as we partake of that sample of bread and that sample of wine, we are actually confessing, I am completely unworthy of anything. And he is the worthy one. The cup and the bread, the wine and the bread, remind me that he is my total salvation. Without him, I have no spiritual food. Without him, I have no spiritual drink. Without him, I have no salvation. I was so encouraged speaking to one of the new communicants from this last Lord's Supper. I asked, how, how did it go? And he said, oh, it was, it was wonderful. I said, well, how was it wonderful? He said, well, I came to the table and I was just so, so unworthy. I don't deserve to be here at all. I have nothing, nothing to present to God. And all I could think of as I, as I drank the wine and as I ate, ate the bread, all I could think of is, it's him. He is worthy. He is worthy. I am unworthy. <laughs> oh, yes. That's exactly where you want to stay. That's exactly where you want your soul to encamp. Right there, you see. And when you are the unworthy one, and He is the altogether lovely and worthy one, and you drink and you eat, the signs and the seals then, God uses so that you have communion. Genuine spiritual communion with Jesus Christ. Then the Lord's Supper is like a banquet, a fountain of refreshment that cannot run dry. Then Christ is both the milk and the meat of the Word. And there is no more solid or higher food in the kingdom of God than Jesus Christ Himself. And the more you grow in Christ, the more your taste will mature and you will want nothing but Jesus Christ and Him crucified. That's what our forefathers called mystical union with Christ. Not, not unbiblical mystical, but biblical mystical union with Christ. Mystical meaning something you, you, can't, you can't explain it. It goes beyond your comprehension. But you know that Christ communed with you. You know that communion is real. In fact, when you really commune with Christ, it's more real than anything physical. Then you can say, my communion with Christ is more real than the church pew I'm sitting on right now. John Calvin said, the union with Christ that we experience in the supper can better be experienced than explained. The Belgian Confession said, says that it surpasses our understanding and cannot be comprehended by us as the operations of the Holy Spirit are hidden and incomprehensible. See, here at the table of the Lord, we taste a sweet communion with Christ. The Belgian Confession goes on to say, in His wounds we find all manner of consolation, all manner of all kinds of comfort. 
Paul cries that out in Romans 5, doesn't he? We rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom we have now received the atonement. Now, doesn't the word do the, the preached word do the same thing? Yes, over and over again. But there's a special sense in which the Lord's Supper communicates this in such a simple way. But yes, the Word does the same thing. It opens up Christ's atonement. And that's a lesson we need. We need in our heads. We need it in our hearts. We need it transferred to our whole life again and again and again. So here's, here's what God does in the Lord's Supper. The Holy Spirit works through the Lord's Supper by means of the signs and seals of bread and wine to pry our fingers loose from sin and from this perishing world and to fill our hands with the riches of Christ crucified and Christ exalted. We're so worldly. We're so bound to time and sense. But in the Lord's Supper, we have a sweet communion with Christ and with one another in which our hands are pried loose from sin from this world. And we focus with our mind and soul on what Christ Jesus has done for us. You see, then we can say, yes, Christ is there at that table. Yes, spiritually I did eat of him and drink of him by faith. Yes, he came very low to me and scooped me up and lifted me up into heavenly places where I communed with him. Yes, my hands were emptied of sin and world and filled with the things of Christ by the operation of the Holy Ghost. Remember that in question 79. It's not something I just give to myself. It's something the Holy Ghost strips away all my worthiness and He fills me with the worthiness of Christ. My hands are overflowing. My cup overflows. I'm filled with Jesus. And I say, I have sweet communion, O Lord. Like we sing in Psalter 204. Sweet communion, Lord, with Thee. I constantly abide. My hand thou holdest in thy own to keep me near thy side. I feed by faith. I feed by faith upon the body and blood of the Lord. Now that doesn't happen every time to an equal degree with God's people. Don't get me wrong. Don't think that if you come to the Lord's Supper and you can't tangibly say, I had a good measure of this sweet communion that it means you're not a child of God. No. Sometimes there can be obstacles in the way. Sometimes you just don't meditate on Christ. <laughs> That's a sure guarantee that you won't be fed at the table. Other times you might come in the wrong spirit. Or you might come with something in your hands as if you deserve something. And then you, won't, you will get nothing as well. Or... Maybe the fear of man overtakes you when you come to the Lord's Supper. But don't, don't let that bring you to despair. Ask God that you might understand it better and, and come the next time unworthy in self and focus on the worthiness of Christ and you will experience sweet communion with Christ. Sometimes more, sometimes less. You can't measure it. Sometimes it's just a quiet peace 
in the fullness of Christ and your soul is satiated. Sometimes it's more overwhelming. But you come. You come when you're cold. You come when you're warm. You come when you feel guilty. You come when you you feel pardoned. You come because you can't live without Jesus. No matter what your spiritual condition is in that preparatory week, you can't go on without Him. You need Him. You have high thoughts of Him and low thoughts of yourself. And so you come looking to Him to pry your hands loose from sin in the world to live out of Jesus. So the supper reminds us over and over and over again, as long as we live on earth, that all of our spiritual life is simply and only and constantly flowing from the cross of Jesus Christ, which is what the blood and the bread point us to. I love the statement of Thomas Boston. What is faith but the daily traveling from our emptiness to the fullness that is in Christ Jesus? Let me repeat that. What is faith but the daily traveling between our emptiness and the fullness that is in Christ Jesus? That is not just the Lord's Supper. That's our daily lives. But that is in a special way in the Lord's Supper. So don't expect anything from you. Expect it all from Christ. Article 29 of the Belgian Confession says it this way, But this is not to be understood as if there did not remain in believers great infirmities, but they fight against them through the Spirit all the days of their life, continually, notice this, continually taking their refuge, where? In the blood, the death, the passion, and the obedience of our Lord Jesus Christ, in whom they have remission of sins through faith in Him. That's what the Lord's Supper is all about. Muhammad Sabrakal stated it even more strongly. He said, every believer goes out to the cross thousands of times in his life to find all this salvation in Jesus Christ. Oh, how sweet the Lord's Supper then is when as we sit at the table, we may be communing about the fullness of Christ for our empty souls. Then we will be able to say with a poet, Jesus, bread of life, I pray thee, let me gladly hear obey thee. I am by thy grace invited, by thy love with love requited. From this banquet let me measure, Lord, how vast and deep its treasure, through the gifts thou here dost give me, as thy guest one day in heaven receive me. The Lord's Supper is a beautiful sacrament to raise the level of our faith. Our instructors even say to assure us of our salvation. And we'll look at that in our last thought. So we've looked at what the bread and the wine are, what they mean, and now what they do. 
And you see that at the end of question 79, more especially these visible signs and pleasures, that is the bread and wine, do assure us, assure us. So God's goal in the Lord's Supper with His people is to grow their faith that it may flower into what the old divines called full assurance of faith. And our instructor puts this in two ways. He says, first of all, to assure us that we are as really partakers of His true body and blood by the operation of the Holy Spirit. It's always by the Spirit, you see. As we receive by the mouths of our bodies these holy signs in remembrance of Him. So, as we receive these holy signs, the bread and the wine, and remembering Him, remembering Him as we do so, then it's as if the Lord says to His contrite, humble, needy, believing, unworthy people, I'm placing in your hands this bread and this wine. Look at it. I'm doing this to assure you that just as certainly as you taste this bread and wine, so certainly I will apply my cross to you and feed your soul forever. That's my promise. Don't doubt my word. Be assured. That's number one. Number two is assured of what? Look at the last words. To assure us that all his sufferings, this is strong language, all his sufferings and obedience are as certainly ours as if we had in our own persons suffered and made satisfaction for our sins to God. How could you say any stronger than our instructors do that Christ is all our salvation? He's done it all. Nothing depends on us. The way is open. It's like Hebrews 9, 13, 14 say, If the blood of bulls and goats and the ashes of a heifer, sprinkling the unclean, sanctifies to the purifying of the flesh, how much more shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered Himself without spot to God, purge your conscience from dead works, to serve the living God. Let us therefore draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience. So, Christ speaks of His body and of His blood not without great reason. So that we can feast on Jesus in communion at the Lord's Supper. And as we feast on Jesus, let us not forget, this is by the Holy Spirit, by the Holy Spirit, and it is also the delight of the Father to give us His Son to feed His people. So we see in these simple elements, God's the Father's sincerity and delight in lavishing His people with the grace of His Son. The Father is not reluctant to give us His Son. The Son is not reluctant to give us Himself. The Holy Spirit is not reluctant to reveal the Son to us. 
It is the delight, the delight of the triune God to give himself away to his people. And he does that in a special way in the Lord's Supper by spreading this feast, these signs, these seals, sealing it home with assurance to them of the crucified body and the shed blood of Jesus. He's loading the table with the rich food of his sufferings. And he calls the weak, the doubting, the halting, the downcast. He calls those who are weary from fighting Satan, the world, and the sin of their own hearts, the stumbling ones, the heavy laden ones. He calls those who are burdened by their sins and yet who trust for mercy in Jesus Christ. Come, come to my table. Come take and eat. This is my body, which is broken for you. Come to the fullest of all feasts that can never run out. For one drop of His blood is of infinite value in the sight of God. Come to the banquet of the King that is designed precisely for unworthy, undeserving, poor, needy sinners. Come for grace. Come for refreshment. Come for hope. Come for courage. Come to have your love rekindled again by the love of God. Well, let me say in closing that it's no wonder, no wonder, that Satan rages against this most beautiful institution and seeks to obscure it and to minimize the impact of this holy sacrament. No wonder he tries to twist this, these signs and seals so that we no longer realize what it means. You see, when God's people fix their eyes on the cross of the Savior in communion with Him at the Lord's table, the kingdom of God is advanced. The kingdom of Satan totters. His devices fail. His plots lose their potency. Sin becomes more heinous, grace more precious, holiness more desirable and more pursued, and the Lord more honored when we commune with Him at His table. Trial becomes bearable reproach of no account when it suffered for the sake of this cross. For then we endure the cross. We despise the shame looking unto Jesus. Oh, when God is present among His people at His table through the powerful, assuring work of the Holy Spirit, grace and glory are poured out from the courts of heaven into the hearts of the saints. And the Lord's table then is a foretaste of heaven. It's one of the crown jewels of the church here on earth. And it leads us to cry out, Solus Christus, Soli Deo Gloria, Hallelujah for communion with the Lamb. Amen. Gracious God, we thank Thee so much for communion at communion, real communion with the real Christ through His truly broken body and shed blood and now in His exalted state at the Father's right hand ever living to intercede for us, those who are true believers. Oh God, what a treasure, what a treasure the Lord's Supper is. 
come and bless us there again and again. And as we've had it recently, and we reflect back on it, Lord, let it strengthen us even now, all the way until the next Lord's Supper. And then again and again, may we be strengthened, assured of thy faithfulness, of the promise, of the seal, of the sign, of the guarantee that thou wilt never forsake the unworthy who entrust themselves to the worthiness of the Son of God. Heavenly Father, we thank thee so much for giving thy Son. Son of God, we thank thee so much for giving thyself even to the death of the cross and for thy constant intercessions. And Holy Spirit, we thank thee so much for taking the things of Christ and revealing them to us. And we long for the day, we long for the day when we will be in perfect communion with thee, the triune God, world without end, in beatific, ecstatic vision, forever and ever, around the throne of the Lamb. Hallelujah. The Lord God omnipotent reigneth. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.